You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is printed for you in your order of worship, your little bulletin thingy. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there, there's one on the back table I'd love to give you. That's our gift to you. Uh, I'd love to put that in your hands. And while you're turning to the book of 1 Peter, uh, we're at the end of chapter 1. Let me remind us what we're doing here. Being a Christian is, of course, nothing less than, but it can't also be reduced to um, a certain set of beliefs or a certain ethic, or even a certain kind of expression, like worship form. Uh, it, it can't be reduced to that because Jesus calls his people to be his disciples, his, his followers. And, and that means, to some extent, some, uh, a semblance of, of imitation, as it did in the ancient world. You become like your master. This summer, we're working through First Peter to help us see what it means to follow Jesus in a world that um, more and more believes that uh, Christians are, are nutty. We're crazy. Um, I, I don't know if you realize that that's the cultural context we live in. I hope so. I hope we're not so insular that we think what we believe is kind of normal. It's not. It's nutty, okay? And so this week we look to a concept that kind of, uh, frankly, the concept's been so misused that it's almost utterly devoid of meaning, right? The, the concept of love. Our text this morning is a call to let your following of Jesus propel you into love, but not just any definition of love. Love that is shaped specifically by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Jesus that we follow. So if you have your place in 1 Peter, we're uh, starting in verse 22 of chapter 1 and going into uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. If you'd stand in honor of God's Word, as is our habit here. This word that we're about to read is not our choice. It's not like uh, the church kind of sat around and said, you know, I think we'll go with this book and not another one. Or um, it's not even something that the Holy Cross elders decided, you know, let's, let's go with, with this and, and instead of, you know, chicken soup for the soul. This is, this is a word that lays claim on us. And let's hear it that way this morning. This is God's word. Having purified your souls... By obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come into this place with different stories, different um, understandings of who you are, um, different understandings of who we are, different understandings of what it is that will reconcile us to you or will make things right, we ask that you would speak clearly, that you would preach your gospel to us. Let 
Jesus and his cross come to the fore and me kind of just fade in the background. And Lord, open our hearts that we might hear from you now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. This morning, you and I are in danger, um, and there are at least two reasons why this is true. The, the first is because when I say the word love, almost all of us immediately think of some kind of uh, sappy, sentimental affirmation of self, right? But that's what love means. It, it's some kind of um, carte blanche affirmation of of a person and all that they do. In other words, the notion the notion is that, that love is a kind of nice, perhaps even warm, indifference to the other, added to a blanket state of approval. Now this is very Western, it's perhaps even romantic, but not what the Bible says when it says love. And so that means that we are in danger of misunderstanding what's about to be said by assuming we know what that word means, okay, as we come to it. Now that's the first danger. Um, the second danger is like it, since some of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, confuse the word love with the word truth. Uh, we want to say that you love people by throwing the truth at them, regardless of any sense of how best that will be received or, um, or, or what's going to be most helpful. And at root, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is more about us being right than helping another person, which means that any call to love is seen as another um, clear message to bludgeon people with the truth as much as you can, um, as, especially as we begin to feel more and more culturally marginalized, which, quite frankly, is becoming more and more common. Um, so what I want to do today, this morning, is to step back and, and clear the slate for a minute, okay? And let's all join in a, in a, in a game of make-believe here for a second. Let's all pretend that we believe that God's Word defines what things are to mean. Let's all just pretend that for a minute, okay? I know some of us, some of us are like, duh. And others are like, I don't even know what that means. Like, like, let's all just pretend that, that when we attach the word Christian to something, it is God's word that defines it and not a majority vote or a popular opinion, okay? So that when we talk about love, and especially talk about the expression of Christian love, what we need to do is let the Bible define that. And so as we do that, we'll see that being a follower is about following in love. And so this morning, we're going to look at this text in three ways. Uh, as always, there's an outline for you in your bulletin if that's helpful. If not, don't worry about it. Just leave it there. We're going to look at the foundation for love. We're going to look at love's call. And then finally, we're going to look at its fuel. Okay? Foundation, call, and fuel. You ready? All right. Let's look at love's foundation. The foundation for Peter's call here is found in two phrases. Okay? Uh, both carry the weight of the words since. Look down at verse 22, okay? Because it, it's, he, he looks at it like this. Since you have done this, since you are this, go and do that. And this is crucial because it means that this foundation, uh, it, it means that this foundation for Peter is crucial to the execution of the call. You, you tracking with me? In other words, the foundation, what he's saying, what comes after the since is absolutely crucial for the call that he's going to make. If that beginning thing isn't true, the call can't happen. So he says this first. Since you have purified your soul by obedience to the truth unto a sincere brotherly love. Now stop there. Let's be clear. Most of us have no idea what that means. Okay, We have no clue. So let's stop pretending. Um, 
some of us think we get it, the rest of us just pretend to and then skip over it thinking it's irrelevant, okay? To get this, we need to understand at least two things. We need to understand what it, what, like, what it means to purify, why, why he even uses that, that kind of metaphor. Um, and then secondly, we need to look at what it means to be obedient to the truth. So let's start with purifying. We live in a cultural moment where we are deeply ambivalent to the idea that there is something deeply wrong. Right? On the one hand, we, we fully agree that there's something wrong. We call it something that's biologically wrong with us, um, uh, psychologically wrong with us, um, genetically wrong with us, even socioeconomically wrong with us, right? There are all these structures that are in place that make things wrong or something biological. And what that generally tends to mean in our culture is, therefore, I'm not responsible for those things, right? So like last Sunday, someone helped me be made aware that um, just recently it's been determined that obesity is a disease and that the cure for obesity is diet and exercise. The cure to the disease is diet and exercise, right? But it's a disease, which means that it's not my fault. I have a disease. Now, the cure for it is eating right and getting more exercise. But it's not my fault, okay? So you understand what the point is there. Like, we, we want to blame everything on, we, we say that, yes, there is something wrong with me and with the world, but it's not my fault, okay? It's a, it's a reductionism. The Bible isn't quite that reductionistic. In short, the Scriptures teach that every person on this planet is born into a state in which we are less than what we were created to be. We're less than what we were created to be. Our relationships are all out of joint. What I mean by that is like our relationship with ourself is out of joint. Our relationship with one another is out of joint. We, that, that we know, right? Because relationships are just rough. Our relationship with creation is out of joint. What I mean by that is like, have you ever noticed that things are just hard? Like your work is hard? Like it doesn't quite fulfill you the way it's supposed to? And you, you meet problems, some of which you can't fix? Scripture says that's, that's not natural. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and all of those relationships are out of joint because of a fundamental relationship that's broken, our relationship with God. Because, you see, we're made to be in a loving, dependent relationship with God, but we sought independence from Him. We wanted to do our own thing. We, we wanted to turn away from Him. And, and that, friends, turning away from the God who loved us, is called betrayal. And when we betrayed God, it, it jacked us up. It completely jacked us up. Okay? When we betrayed God, and when I say betrayed God, you have to understand, that's what, that's what the Bible calls sin, okay? I know we often don't think of it that way. Think about it in terms of rules, and most of those arbitrary. But the Bible talks about it in terms of betrayal. It's betraying a relationship. And when we betrayed God, we came under the guilt that comes with betrayal, but we're also bent away from Him, such that now we live by nature in alienation from Him. Now, what does that have to do with purifying? Namely this. When the, when the Bible... Dis, what, what I just described is what the Bible describes as impurity, being bent away from, the, from, from God, being, being um, another way of saying it is corrupt, that, that that is impurity. Now, we hear purity and we think good behavior, but the Scriptures see it as not being fundamentally proper to what we were created for. Let me try that again. It, it sees it as being less than what we were made to be. Okay? And so purifying something is restoring it, setting it apart, cleansing it from what has made it less than what it was made for. And now P Peter says that Christians have purified their souls. And we hear souls, that's uh, not helpful to us. When, when Peter said soul, he meant the kind of the center of who you are. Okay? Um, Greeks in the ancient world liked to divide up people into multiple parts. Jews did not. Peter is a Jew. Jew they, they just saw all of these as different 
uh, perspectives on the whole and the soul, which means the center of, meant for Peter, the center of who we are. Peter says that Christians have purified the center of our being by obedience to the truth. Now, what does that mean? What it does not mean is that you are purified uh, by doing true things, okay? In other words, I do this, I do this, and I do that, and then I get purified. It's not what it means. In the New Testament, the truth is that we are obedient. The truth that we are obedient to is the gospel, okay? Now, that's a churchy word, so let me explain. Um, simply, the word gospel means good news. That's easy enough, right? You got all that? It means good news. And what that good news is, is that God has acted to take us, jacked up as we are, and make us right. That is the good news. And so he did this by becoming human in Jesus, living that pure life that we were made for, that life, the, the life that is proper for humans, dependent on God, loving towards others. And then he died on the cross to bear that guilt from our betrayal of God. So what does it mean to, obedient, to be obedient to that? It means this. The fact that Jesus did that is great. That's fantastic. Eh, great. What are you going to do with it? What do you do with that? Right? Paul says in Acts 17, uh, the Apostle Paul says that in light of this great historical truth, right, in light of the fact that Jesus did all this, that God acted in Jesus to save humanity, that now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent. Again, another churchy word. What does that mean? It means turning away from the ways in which we have been living and turning back towards him, towards uh, in, in faith. Um, someone, someone came to Jesus one time and, and they said, um, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to make things right between me and God? And Jesus said, you've got to trust in the one that he sent, namely him. Um, in other words, being obedient to the truth means actually trusting in Christ, trusting in God's method of rescue for us. And when we do that, we are forgiven of our sin, purified by obedience to the gospel, repenting of our independence, placing our faith in Christ. You with me? That's the first leg of the foundation. Since you have done this, since you have been obedient to the truth, and thus your souls have been purified. In other words, since you have trusted in Christ. Now, let's get to the second leg, because the second leg is new birth. Look down at verses 23 to 24. Peter says, having been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, stop there. Many of us in this room, when we hear the words born again, we completely check out. Um, but I need you to stay with me for a minute. Because when Peter says born again, he's speaking to what I said before about being by nature turned away from God. This is just another way of him dealing with what has answered the problem. This is how the Bible describes the state, the state of sin. Because you see, many of us are confused on this. Doing sin, like sinning, doesn't make you a sinner in scriptural terms. You are a sinner and therefore you, say, you do what's normal, right? Cows moose, sinners sin, it's what we do. You know, this is the way things are. And that's how the scriptures speak of it. We are born sinners. We are born jacked up. And so we do jacked up things because of it. And so when Peter says that we've been born again, he's talking about removing us from that state. Now stay with me because this is important. If, if you are by nature bent towards independence from God, how can you possibly turn away from that back towards dependence with him? 
How can you, in other words, how can we who are stuck in a state of independence independently bring ourselves out of it? We can't. We can't. And that is where this whole thing that Peter's talking about comes into play. Because, you see, when he says the word born again, we have two words there that we use to translate one word in the original. In the original, grammatically, forgive me for bringing grammar into the discussion, but it's really, really important, trust me. Like, grammatically, it's in the passive which means it's not something you do, it's something that happens to you. Okay? Really, really important. We can't be obedient to the truth, like he just said, unless, first, we've been brought out of our corruption. And that is what this quotation of Scripture is all about. When he says that all flesh like grass and all of its glory like the flower of the... What is that talking about? That's from, that's from a passage in one of the prophets prophet by the name of Isaiah, perhaps you've heard of him, Isaiah chapter 40, in which what, what is being talked about in Isaiah 40 is God acting to deliver his people, to bring them out of exile and restore them to the land they were made for, to their homes, and, and this great act of redemption in which he is accomplishing for them. And in the New Testament, when you see a few lines of some passage, and normally in your Bibles they're kind of set apart from other things, and you can tell, oh, this is kind of a quotation, when authors in the New Testament would quote a verse or a couple of verses, or a couple of lines, what they were doing was not proof texting, not going, see, I'm right, because the Old Testament says it, so Mew. Like, what they were doing is they were trying to elicit an entire passage. They were trying to say, I want to draw your attention to a very familiar passage that you will know by just quoting a couple of lines. Okay? It was a standard practice in, in, in the first century world. And so... He's not just saying, this isn't some like, let me show you how really the Word of God is eternal. Okay, that, that, okay yes, but. The, the rest of the passage is about God acting on His own initiative for a helpless group of people to draw them out of the state of brokenness that they were in and restore them to Himself. That's exactly what Peter is talking about. You have been born again. What does that mean? You, God has invaded your life, acted apart from your initiative. Guess what? You didn't have any because you were bent towards independence just like I was. And he invades your life and he draws you out of that so that you can be obedient to the truth and that your souls can be purified. This is new birth. This is part of the foundation. Let me make something clear. You cannot be a Christian who has not been born again. I know that we have these two terms in American Christianity, right? We have Christian, we have born-again Christian. Right? Right? False dichotomy. If you are a Christian who has not been born again, you're not really a Christian. You're just someone play-acting. Okay? At least according to the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you remember when it happened. I mean, perhaps it happened when you were a young kid. Um, my, my hope for my children, my hope for all of our children here in the church is they will never remember a time when they went from, like, I hate Jesus to the time when, like, he's my best friend, I love him. I hope they never remember that day. But that doesn't necessarily mean you remember it. But if it hasn't happened, the foundation has not been laid. Christianity is not a cultural thing it, and you aren't born a Christian, and it's not like the default position if you're not a Buddhist or a Muslim, okay? I know that a lot of us think that. We're like, get the census. We're like, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Muslim. Other? Eh, I'm probably a Christian, right? I'm American. No. 
If you're not born again, friends, uh, being a Christian is a supernatural work of God to make us new so that we will place our faith in Christ. Okay? That's the foundation. That brings us to the call. The call itself comes in two parts. I want to deal with the second part first. So look down at chapter 2, verse 1, because here's the, here's the call. Peter says, Put away, therefore, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, we could go through these individually, but it may make more of an impact to recognize what they all have in common. Before we do that, did you notice those ideas in that passage from Leviticus? Can I be honest with you? I didn't the first time I read them. And I'm listening to, I'm listening to Pat read them this morning, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, all those things are right there. Like, the reason why that passage got picked as, as one of our passages because of the, the famous love your neighbor as yourself. But that comes as like the climax of all these other things, which are basically like stop slandering, quit hating people, be fair. Like, and so just like Peter, what Leviticus is trying to say is that the call, uh, the first part of the call and what all of these words are really about is horizontal relationships. Because all of these things are things that disintegrate community. They are communal vices. Malice is ill will towards others. Deceit is lying to others. Hypocrisy is role-playing a lie before others. Envy is wanting what others have. Slander is speaking falsely against others. These are ways we destroy one another. Okay? These are, these are not like, well, I'm sinning only against God. No, no, no. These are, these are ways that we sin against one another. They are horizontal realities, and sadly, they are far too common among Christians. Now, two things I want to say about this. First, Peter makes this call with a therefore. And if you were here last week, you remember that I made much of this. Like, when you see a therefore, it means that what he's about to say has been founded on what he said previously. Right? It's, it's what he is about to say is not in a vacuum. It is based on what he just said. And so Peter is saying that since this is true of you, in other words, you have been born again, you have purified yourself by obedience to the truth, put these things away. This is important. Listen to me. Check back in if you need to, okay? Check back in. What is true of us, follow me, if you are a Christian, what is true of us always comes before what we are to do. In theological terms, the indicative always comes before the imperative. Who you are will always come before what you are to do because in, in Christian theological terms, if you are called to do something, but who you are has not been changed, it will not happen. Who you are always must come before what you do. Okay? Very important. Secondly, Peter's whole point is, is that these community-destroying acts are no longer proper or fitting with Christian identity. We are not to be those who destroy people. But we do this in a million different ways. Let me give you some churchy ways we do this. We slander one another under this guise of false spirituality when we go up to someone else and we say, I need you to pray for this person over here. And then we air all of their dirty laundry. Please pray for them. And notice how much better I am than they are. Sometimes we do this in marriages, right? Because we start airing our spouse's dirty laundry to people for the same reason. People are like, how, how are things going? When someone asks you how things are going, they probably mean with you. Not with, for you to then go and 
share stuff that your spouse would probably be really embarrassed to know that someone else knows about them. Now, I'm not saying you don't live truth, truthfully within community. But sometimes, folks, we need, we need to let the person whose life it is <laughs> have a little bit more say in who, who knows things. We, we practice malice by thinking the worst of other Christians, right? Or by viewing the church with suspicion and fear. We envy by... Um, if you're married here this morning, uh, we envy by looking at other people's spouses and going, I wish my spouse were more like that. Or, if you're not married and you look at someone's spouse and you're like, I wish I had a spouse like that. We idealize them, right? <laughs> Just trust me. There ain't no perfect, ain't no perfect husband or wife. Uh, there ain't no perfect marriage. If you find one, then don't get involved, okay? So, uh, like, we idealize them, and then we wish our spouses more like them. Friends, these are acts that destroy people, they destroy communities, they destroy churches, and they are not fitting, not fitting to those who claim Christ. Now, that's the negative side of it. Don't do this. Now, that gives us the background to return to verse 22. Look at what Peter actually calls us to. He says, love one another from a pure heart. Now, three things on this. First, remember the foundation. From a pure heart. Since you have purified yourself, since you've been obedient to the truth, since you've been born again, now love. Not love one another so that your heart will get pure. Very important. It's not love one another to get pure. It's since you've been made pure, now love one another. And remember, again, in the first century, just like I said about soul, the heart was not simply the place where the emotions happen. They had no, um, first century Jews had no category for that. Um, as a matter of fact, when we say heart, um, more likely than not, we translate it heart, but it means somewhere down in here, okay, the word that they used, because you ever notice when you're nervous, where do you feel it? Down here, right? You feel it down here. When you feel um, giddy, where do you feel it? Down here. And so they would think, that's where the center of my, my being is, down here, right? Okay? We don't think of that. That's like, ew. But that's, that's, what we, that's what they would think, okay? So when he says heart, again, core of our being, he's talking about the love one another from the core of your being. Secondly, he says to love one another, okay? Now this phrase, this phrase to, to do something for one another, that is so overused in the New Testament. You realize in the New Testament there are 59 occurrences of that phrase. Not just love one another, but just one another. As a matter of fact, it's, it's like a staple that Christians are to one another. It's all, almost like... You'll see scholars talk about one anothering and things like that. If, if you see something 59 times in 27 books, it's probably pretty important. Um, and so, what this means, what Peter is talking about, is that cr- Christians are to act towards one another, towards one another. And and what's more, this this little one another thing in the New Testament is important because it highlights the reality that Christian community. Listen to me. Christian community is not an option. It's not like, I'm a Christian, and sometimes I go to church. Sometimes I'm a part of that group. No. You can't one another in isolation. And if something's in there 59 times, it's probably because it's core to who you are. Okay? Christians are called to community. It's what life is meant to be. Okay? So that's the first two. The third thing is what love is. Now, like I said before, almost all of us think we know what that means, right? Because for most of us, the truest form of love is some kind of um, unconditional acceptance. 
Loving means approving whatever someone does, no matter how self-destructive, simply because they're doing it. It's them. In other words, to love someone equates not just with toleration, but approval of actions, attitudes, and behaviors. And what's more, almost all of us believe that love is purely emotional, that it's spontaneous, um, which means that we don't believe love takes work or should ever be difficult. Now, that is our background noise. That is all of our background noise. Now, here's the reality of this word that's used by Peter. Some of you will know this. Um, others of you probably not, that, that in the original that Peter's writing in, which is Greek, there are three words for love, right? And we all say, well, which word for love is it? Ultimately, uh, that does matter, but not in the way we think. Christians um, in the first few centuries, um, especially immediately after what Jesus did, began using one of those three words specifically of the kind of love that Jesus showed. But here's the thing. In the ancient world, there was no definition of love that equated to what Jesus did. Love was always about self. It was affection for something else. It was, it was maybe feeling attachment to something else, but it was always about what you were getting. Christians began to use this word about Jesus so much that the definition of the word changed. It's kind of like when certain words pop up in our vernacular that once had a different meaning, like cool, bad, right? You know, uh, awesome. There's a great one. Epic. No longer means what the definition means, right? But now it has a new definition. Christians changed the definition of this word. The definition has been shaped by the love of Jesus. In other words, this form of love that he's using here is shaped like a cross. It is cruciform. Here's what that means. When Peter says, listen to me, because this is really important. When Peter says to love one another, what he means is to seek the flourishing of another at cost to yourself out of a heart of compassion. To seek the flourishing of another at cost to yourself out of a heart of compassion. One last thing. This section, if you're looking in your outline, is, is labeled new definition for one reason. That definition of love is unheard of. Love that costs you? Wait a minute, but you don't know my spouse. <laughs> love that costs you? Unheard of. Today, that, that's a throwaway phrase, love. Love is convenient. We will remake 1 Corinthians 13 and be like, love is convenient. Love is fun. It doesn't struggle. It doesn't persevere. It always laughs. It always chuckles. It always feels good. Love is always fickle. That's what we would say. That is not the love that's here. It was unheard of in the ancient world. It is unheard of now. The only reason that this definition exists is because Christians needed some way to describe what Jesus did for us. How to define what he meant when he said that he loved us to the full. That is why it is critical to being a Christian. Because 
It is an attitude and a commitment based squarely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. Let's speak in a more applied manner if we can. I want to look at the fuel of love. First, let's talk about truly loving. There are two components to this that we need to be, that need to be worked out if we're actually going to do something so challenging. So first, let's go back to the definition I gave. Remember, biblically, loving is seeking another's flourishing at cost to yourself from a posture of compassion. Here's the key. You and I have got to define the word flourishing biblically. Okay? Because uh, today in our culture, we have a basic definition of flourishing that says that I will flourish when I am self-fulfilled. When I, when I get everything that I want, when I can express whatever desire comes across my mind or my heart on a given day. And so then we have the, you know, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad notion. You know, we've got the, we've got the, um, like, this is why, this is why you often hear, perhaps you think, or maybe you've said it, okay? Um, if you love me, you'd let me do X. Or, if you loved me, you'd want me to be happy. Or, if you loved me, you'd accept me as I am. What all that means is the expression of my desires, whatever I think will fulfill me, that is what will make me flourish, and you don't want me to flourish. You hate me, you don't love me. See how that works? Biblically, though, that is not flourishing. The Bible calls that slavery to yourself. Bondage. To sin, not flourishing. It's like the opposite of flourishing. <laughs> that is putting sugar water in your gas tank. It's like, but I like sugar water. I know, but your engine is not made to run on it. It's made to run on gasoline, and that tastes gross. Don't drink it. You know, like cars run on that. Flourishing, biblically, is when our relationships are reconciled as they were meant to be, with God, with one another, with creation and ourselves. Flourishing is seeing the effects of sin, its power and its penalty eliminated. That is flourishing. To seek another's flourishing is to seek to see their lives conform to the pattern set out in God's Word. That is flourishing. Because that is how God said we were made to be. The second component is the point about doing it at cost to yourself. This is important because what we are talking about here often involves two things. It involves service, and it often involves confrontation. And we hate both of those things. You and I love, or you and I avoid confrontation because we love peace and we love our image more than we love other people. Let's be really clear on that. When I see you walking in sin, hurting your spouse, destroying yourself, and I say nothing, it is because I care more about my own comfort than I do about you. And to be honest, that is probably far too true in my life. I may justify it, right? Because I may say, well, I need to earn the right. Which is always just like another month away. I need to earn the right to speak into this person's life, which is like, y'all hang out all the time. I know, but I'm not quite there yet. How will you know? I'll just know. Like, I'll, I'll feel better about it, right? Uh, or, or we spiritualize it by saying that someone more spiritual than I am is dealing with this, right? They're speaking into it, which means that we can watch whatever happens and just go, man, I'm glad that person's dealing with that because, woo, 
ooh, that's nasty. You're like, um, whatever, whatever. The reality is, you and I just don't want the discomfort of confrontation or the cost of service. That's what that means. And that, friends, is not loving. It is, a, it is at best hatred and at worst indifference. Loving one another will mean stepping into other people's lives, often with tears, to say things like, I love you, but what is going on in your life right now? Where are you at with Jesus? This thing you're doing, you have got to repent. Loving others will mean giving your time and your gifts to see them become what they were meant to be without thinking about reciprocity. In other words, it's not economic. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's not based on what I can get out of it. Not about reciprocity. Loving, biblically, is self-forgetful. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's, thinking about, it's, it's about thinking about yourself less. <laughs> it's self-forgetful, because that is what Jesus did. But how do you do that? I mean, if I just leave it there, and we just leave it there and go, so go out and do that. I won't even make it to that door. Like, I barely make it to, like, Carlton's seat, and then I'll be done and be like, I give up. You know, like, uh, we cannot do this in our own power. The fuel for loving like this is found in craving the proper nourishment, namely the gospel. Look down at chapter 2, verse 2. I, I didn't mention this verse. Peter says this, As newborn infants crave pure, uh, the ESV says, spiritual milk, so that you might grow into salvation. The word that, that word that most translations translate spiritual doesn't actually mean spiritual. Uh, that's, that's an interpretation. It actually means um, logical or proper. In other words, crave what is proper. Crave what is proper to make you grow into salvation. What Peter is pointing to is what he says in verse 25. Because what has brought them to that place? The word of the gospel which is preached to you. We are fueled to love like this by believing the gospel. Here's why. Stay with me. This is important. You cannot love like this if you feel like you have to protect, provide, or promote yourself. If you feel like you have to protect yourself, there's no way you're going to give your life over to loving another person. Because it's going to cost you. If you feel like you have to get yours, you've got to look out for number one, there's no way that you're going to give your life over to provide for another person. Because who's going to take care of you? And if you think you have to consistently build your own name and status, you will never, uh, biblical, the biblical metaphor, take up the towel and serve another person. Because that will mean emptying your status, not gaining one. But see, this is where the gospel comes in. Because if you believe the gospel, you can give yourself away. Because what you have been given can never be lost. It can never be lost. You don't have to seek your own good because the highest good you can imagine, the highest good biblically you can imagine, reconciliation between you and God has been accomplished for you. There is nothing you can do to, to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it once, once you truly have it. And it's been secured for you by Jesus, not by you. You don't have to provide for yourself because all that you need has been secured for you in Jesus. And you don't have to promote yourself because in Jesus, not only have you been made right with God, you've been made one of his kids. You think of a better name than child of God. 
If we're not loving well, if we're more concerned about our image or what we can get than about what than than we are about one another, it is because, friends, we are failing to believe the gospel. Folks, love costs. If love doesn't cost, it isn't love. It's convenience. If it doesn't cost you, it's not love. God, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world. What did it cost him? The giving of his one and only son. And remember that the Christian view of God is that God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not just like, okay, I'm going to give somebody else. It's God giving of himself. It costs But if you are in Christ, that cost can be paid freely because Christ loved you by dying for you so that you, so that all the, wretch, the riches of reconciliation, the riches of reconciliation with God are yours. You can give away what you never bought in the first place because it can never be taken from you. We can love because the God whom we follow first loved us. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come into this time, we ask for your grace. As we come out of it, we ask that you would, you would press the gospel deep into our hearts. We need to know you and to walk with you. We need to repent of our community-destroying activities. We need to love one another out of a pure heart. If there's anyone here in this room who is feeling overburdened by the weight of that call because the foundation for them has not been laid. I pray that you would work in their lives even right now. Make them new so that they might be obedient to the truth and that their souls might be purified. In other words, give them faith in Christ. For as the Apostle Paul tells us, even that faith is a gift. So would you give it freely? Draw us close to you so that we might be propelled out to be lovers of one another and of the world. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Everlasting. Amen.